Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of worship together corporately. We thank you for that weekly pattern uh, that you have established for us of meeting as your people, assembling together for the study of your word together, for prayers and the breaking of bread and fellowship and all of these things. And we praise you that you have given us so many blessings, uh, strength and help and encouragement and instruction and rebuke and correction as well through these times. And we pray once again that you would meet with us this morning in a special way to accomplish your work in our lives, to teach us and instruct us through your word and to mold and shape our character and to deepen our knowledge of Christ. And we pray again as we dive into this subject of the Old Testament just an overview of the Old Testament that you would illumine our minds and give us understanding and help us, O oh God, to really grow in our grasp of this portion of your Holy Word. And we pray in, in Jesus' name for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, here we are once again, uh, uh, class number two in our overview of the Old Testament. And what we're going to do is we're going to start in. Last week we had um, some introductory matters that we covered. Today we're going to start into the book of Genesis. But as you know, Genesis is part of what we call the Pentateuch. Maybe you've heard the word Pentateuch before. It just simply means five books. And of course it refers to the first five books that you have in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the five books of the Pentateuch, of course, they all have the same author, they all have the same date, they all have the same recipients. So as we think of the book of Genesis, and we want to start out thinking about, okay, who wrote it, who was it written to, when was it written, we're going to just do that for the entire Pentateuch, because the answer is the same for all five books. Okay, so we'll start there, and then after we deal with those matters, we will dive into Genesis itself. So first, who wrote the Pentateuch? You'll see a picture of him there, Moses. I think that's the only picture extant of him. And uh, for some reason he wrote in Latin. I'm not sure why, but... Uh, he looks European, Yeah, he looks European. <laughs> yeah. Right, that was, that was before he broke with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, well, so if we think about it, you know, if you if you open up your books and uh, the book of the books of the Pentateuch and you look for an author, you know, like this book was written by, <laughs> uh, you're not going to find it, obviously. Um, so officially, the Pentateuch would be anonymous. But when you start getting into the books, you see a number of things that are all pointing you back to Moses. So first of all, you see that the books themselves ascribe much of their contents to revelation that Yahweh, that the Lord, that God uh, delivered to Israel through Moses. And, and just an example of this really quickly, if this is just a sampling of what you would be looking at, Numbers, this is the third book in the Pentateuch, it opens like this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month, in the second year, after they come out of the land of Egypt, saying... And then you have a quotation. And if you read through Numbers, you'll see that over and over again, that same pattern. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, right? So you have 
obviously revelation in the Pentateuch, but revelation that was delivered by Yahweh through his prophet Moses. And Moses, you really should think of him that way. You should think of him as the sort of quintessential prophet, right? Out of which all the other prophets flowed. Also, Moses is repeatedly described as writing down what the Lord was saying to him, okay? So Moses is repeatedly described as writing down what the Lord was saying to him. So just, this is one example, Exodus uh, 34, 27. Exodus 34, 27 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Okay, so that's, that's just a sampling. That's, you see that on many different occasions in the Old Testament, that Moses is commanded to write down what the Lord is telling him. And so what you end up having then is you have later on, you have reference to a book, the book of Moses, right? So, for instance... When you go later on to Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, um, this is much later on in redemptive history, but Ezra 6, 18, it says, As they, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And what is it referring back to? Referring back to, at least in its core, what we would describe as the Pentateuch. These five books that by that time are just being ascribed to Moses. This is the book of Moses, right? The revelation that Yahweh delivered to Israel through his prophet Moses, which Moses then wrote down. And then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, you're going to see that this becomes just very commonplace uh, to refer to Moses as the author of this portion of Holy Scripture. So, just to give you a sense of this, if you go to Luke 24 and you look at verse 27, this, these, there's two kind of very famous uh, verses in this final section where Jesus is referred to as looking back to the Old Testament as pointing to him. But when he speaks in verse 27, he says, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you remember I talked about the threefold division of the Old Testament. The Tanakh, the, there's the Torah, which is the first five books. There is the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then there is the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And so when he says Moses and all the prophets, he's referring to the first five books of the Bible as just Moses. Right? So by Jesus' time, he's looking back at the, at the first five books, the Pentateuch, and he's just referring to them as Moses, from Moses. And you can see the same thing in verse 44, where he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which was shorthand for that third division of the Tanakh, the writings. So again... Whether you're calling it just Moses, or the book of Moses, or the law of Moses, you see that those first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, come to be referred to as being authored by, at least, let's put it this way, being material that God delivered through Moses that Moses then wrote down. 
So Moses is rightly understood to be the author of what is in the Pentateuch. But that being said, when you look at the Pentateuch, you realize quickly that we have to qualify that because there are things in the Pentateuch that could not have been written by Moses. I mentioned Deuteronomy 34, which, what does Deuteronomy 34, it's the very last chapter of the book, and what happens there? Moses dies. So obviously Moses isn't writing about his own death, right? So someone added that in there. And I would also point to something like this. So if you go to Genesis uh, 14, it says this. It says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he, had, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, now, that little word Dan, like that's a city in the north of Israel. But it, but it came to be called Dan, we remember, from the book of Joshua and from the book of Judges, because the Danites were unable to take possession of their allotted portion in the south, and so they went up to the north and captured a particular city, and so that even though Dan's allotted portion was down here, there's a city up in the north called Dan. Well, that didn't happen until long after Moses, so the fact that it's called Dan here in Genesis indicates that there's been some updating, right, <laughs> of the text, that so that the, the reader, so that the, the reader... Uh, later on would would know what city they're talking about, there is an updating of what that place is. So that type of thing is another example of how you can see that, yeah, not everything in the Pentateuch is necessarily written by Moses himself, but the vast majority of the material is revelation delivered from God to Israel through the prophet Moses. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions there on that? Any question? Okay, so let's uh, let's keep going here. What about the date and recipients of the Pentateuch? The date and recipient. Obviously, if Moses wrote the Pentateuch, by and large, then he wrote it, initially at least, to that generation of Israelites that he had was leading out of Israel, out of Egypt at the Exodus and to the Promised Land. And obviously, then he would have written it around that period of time, around the period of time that we would understand to have been when the Exodus took place. However, the fact that Moses wrote it down obviously indicates that he intended his original, his original audience, the, that original generation of Israelites, wasn't the only Israelites that he was writing to. He intended it to be preserved for successive generations of Israelites. Uh, so, in fact, actually, if you look at a text like Deuteronomy 30, right? So, he's writing to the Israelites of that day. He says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, to obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord will God, your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Well, you see, he's, you're recognizing there that he's, he's speaking yes to those Israelites that were living in that day, but there he's even understanding that they're going to violate this covenant. They're going to end up in exile. And when that happens, they're to cry out to the Lord for mercy and He'll bring them back. So, He's understanding that this book, these five books, 
are not just for the Israelites of that day. This is why they're written down. So that they be preserved for successive generations of Israelites. Even generation of Israelites that would one day end up in exile. Right? So, this is for the Old Covenant community as long as it lasts. Right? And then, if we understand that Moses wrote the majority of what is in the Pentateuch, um, then we can actually date it, because while there is some debate about when Moses lived and when the Exodus occurred, which again, you can see a photograph of it there, <laughs> we're talking about about 3,000 years ago, 2nd millennium BC, somewhere between 1400 and 1500 BC, All right, over, over 3,000 years from today. So that was when this material was originally written. Isn't it amazing when you think about that? That a book written to a very small group of people who were a nomadic tribal people in Mesopotamia uh, over 3,000 years ago has been preserved through the centuries and passed down to us today. Why is that? Well, because remember, this is not just the words of Moses, but the words of God, and he ordained for them to be preserved for us. Okay, let's look then about the, what you call the genre of the Pentateuch. In other words, genre is a fancy word for, if you guys have young kids, by the way, you'll, you'll know that I was alluding there to um, a book called Fancy Nancy, <laughs> where Nancy loves French and, and she loves fancy words, and so she's always saying, you know, she's used a complicated word and say, that's a fancy word for... So, Literary genre is a fancy word for what kind of literature you're talking about. So what do we have? What kind of literature is the Pentateuch? Well, of course, if you've read the Pentateuch, you know that from its opening chapter, there is different kinds of literature in there. So for instance, if you read along in the opening chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, you recognize that there's a, an account and a sort of narrative prose of creation and then it breaks into poetry when it speaks about the creation of human beings, right? And God made man in his own image, in the image of God. He made them male and female. He created them. So, there is poetry in the, old, in the Pentateuch. There is genealogy, which is a specific form of literature. There is laws in the Pentateuch. Obviously, you think of a book like Leviticus and also Numbers. You see in Numbers oftentimes case law, which sort of opens up how the Old Covenant law would apply in certain situations. There's obviously oracles, prophecy in the Pentateuch. But by and large, when you read the Pentateuch, when you pick up the Pentateuch, what you're going to see is historical narrative, right? In other words, narrative just means story. It's a story that tells the history, that tells an account of history, historical narrative. Now, we have to be very careful. I love reading history. If you pick up a history book today, there are certain things that you're going to see. The people, scholars that write history today, what they're trying to do is they're trying to read everything. So let's just say they, you know, they're, they're writing a historical account of Abraham Lincoln, and they're going to try, although it's very difficult with Lincoln, to read everything out there on Lincoln, you know, and then they're going to you know, be combing through his actual writings and speeches, 
And so they're going to want to be as comprehensive as possible. Maybe they, that probably means that they're just going to focus on, you know, Lincoln during the years of the Civil War or something. You know, they're going to, they're going to have to smoosh it down because they're trying to be comprehensive. And they're also trying to be objective, right? So very rarely today do you read a history that is intentionally seeking to be biased in some way, right? The older histories are, are more biased. So like if you read an old history, like um, Merle Daubigny wrote a history of the Reformation. He's, and he's, you could tell he's on the side of the Reformation. You know, he'll talk about those wily papists or whatever, you know, and you could tell like he's biased, right? Modern history is not like that. But you have to realize that biblical history is neither of those things. On the one hand, the historical narratives that we have in the Pentateuch are not comprehensive. Moses is not like a modern historian. He's not telling you everything that happens. The history in the, in the Pentateuch is selective, right? And you know that if you read through. There's some things it talks about and some things it doesn't. And sometimes you're like, why did they put this in there? In fact, that's a very good question to ask when you read the historical narratives of the Old Testament. Why did Moses include this? What is the point of this, right? And then you'll also see that it is not impartial history. Moses, when he writes, is not standing back and trying to be unbiased. No, Moses has a theological agenda. He's trying to teach you theological truth through these narratives. So it's a selective history that's intended to communicate and teach certain theological truths. But... That being said, so modern historians, when they look at history like that, they go, see, you can't trust it. You know, it's not objective, it's not comprehensive. And so they say, they look at the, the history of the Old Testament, recorded in the Old Testament, and they say, ah, that's just mythical. It's obviously not true. Look, they're biased. They're on the side of Yahweh, right? Um, well, what we see in the Old Testament is that Yes, it is a selective, it is theological history, but it is true history. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, for one thing, Jesus clearly treated it as true history. One thinks of, uh, for instance, this is just one example, but Jesus looks back in Luke 17, he, he looks forward, let's put it this way, he looks forward to the final coming, his second coming, And he could say something like this in verse 26. Now you just think, let's just stop here for a second. Let's just take the book of Genesis, right? What is the most fantastical, miraculous story in the book of Genesis that is the most difficult for modern people to believe? Is really true. Okay, creation, maybe. The flood. The flood, right? A a global flood that destroyed every living thing on earth, right? People go, "Ah, well... (laughs) You know, certainly that could not have really happened. But look what Jesus says. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were, in the days of Noah, eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Wow! Did he treat the Old Testament history as true? He seems to very much do. Uh, And then... Not only that, but you think, well, what's another one, you know, fantastical story where God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone out of heaven, right? Surely that, you know. But then notice what he says. Likewise, in the same way, 
Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So you see again, Jesus is looking back at the Old Testament unblinkingly, unflinchingly, affirming it as true and even seeing there's going to be a similarity between what happened then and what's going to happen on the final day. And the same thing is true in other parts of Scripture over and over again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the famous Hall of Faith passage, what does he do? He just walks through the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through to like the book of Judges. And then he says, well, we got to stop here because we're out of time. But he, he talks about creation. He talks about the flood. He talks about Abraham and the narratives there. He talks about all of these you know, figures from the Old Testament as examples of, of faith, and he talks about them having these all died in faith. I mean, he sees them and affirms them as being historical. Or Paul in Romans chapter 5, you know, there's been a lot of debate about the historical Adam. Paul builds an entire theological point about original sin and the covenantal structure of God's plan of salvation. Adam and the first and the, the first Adam and the second Adam and how Adam was a type of Christ and how when he sinned it brought uh, it brought the consequences of death upon the entire human race and in the same way when Jesus died uh, obeyed God unto death it brought righteousness to his to those he represented and so the entire argument of Paul in Romans five twelve and following is based upon a, the historical figure of Adam and the fall into sin you're like really. You mean like where the serpent was and all that stuff that was all real? I thought that was like a mythical story. No, apparently not. And in fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 talks about just as the serpent deceived Eve, so I am worried that he, the same devil, is going to you know, deceive you. So the New Testament clearly affirms the Old Testament as, yes, it is selective history. Yes, it is theological history, but it is true history. And we should understand that as we're reading through, that's what we're reading. So primarily, what we're finding in the Pentateuch is what kind of literature? It's historical narrative. And yes, it has poetry and laws and prophecies and um, genealogies and and other things as well. But primarily, it's a story, a true story, telling us the history of the world, going back to the very beginning. Now, let's get to the book of Genesis. Okay, so we've talked about the Pentateuch. We've talked about who it was written by, who it was written to, when it was written, what kind of literature it is. Now let's start into the book of Genesis. And I want to just show you two, start with the overall structure of the book of Genesis. And there are basically two main things that we can see that form the, the, the basic shape of the book of Genesis. Now, one of them is that there is this repeated phrase, the Hebrew word is a toledoth. Obviously, you don't read Hebrew, but uh, again, this is a lovely picture of the mountains in uh, Israel somewhere. Um, but this Hebrew word toledoth, it means, it could, it could be translated this way. These are the generations of, or, or the generations of, and then it gives a figure. So you have this repeated phrase, the generations of. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 2, and let's just, let's just peruse some of these pages here. Genesis 2, 
you can just see in this one, you know, sort of s- section of your Bible, you can begin to see uh, what is being talked about here. So in verse 4, you see the first toledoth. In Hebrew, toledoth. In English, it's translated, these are the generations of, and it's of the heavens and the earth, right? And then you, you flip over in chapter 5, verse 1, and you see, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then what's followed is a genealogy of Adam's descendants. And then if you look over at verse chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. And then it tells a story of Noah. And then later on, it gives a genealogy of, Ab- of Noah's descendants. So you see, these Toledoths, these, genera- these are the generations of... They occur at these points in the narrative. And of course, once you get to Jacob, you know, that's really the rest of the book is about the generations of Jacob. Now, what does it mean, you know, in terms of what is, what, how do the Toledoths function? They mark out these major sections of the book. And what you see is it says, it will say, these are the generations of, and then it will either give a genealogy right away so that, It's literally, you know, these are the generations of, or this is the family history of, you know, Adam. And then it'll give a genealogy. It'll literally give you his descendants. Or it will be followed by a narrative history. These are the generations of, this is the family history of so-and-so. And then it'll give you a narrative history. So that's, for instance, what you have here with Jacob, right? And before him, it's interesting, you know, a name that's missing here that you think would be there. These are the generations of Abraham, but it's not. That comes in uh, under his uh, father, Terah. Um, but, but you see, uh, these are the generations of Ishmael, and there is a genealogy. But then Isaac is narrative, and then Esau, genealogy, Jacob, narrative. So sometimes you have a genealogy that fills the gap between the family histories. Sometimes you have uh, a story of what happened in their life. Again, selective, important high points, or you have both, like a story followed by a genealogy, or a genealogy followed by a story, right? So that's one way that you can see how the structure of the book of Genesis is laid out, telling you this a true story going back to the beginning of creation that's broken up by these Toledoths, these accounts of the family history of certain human beings. And then, another way that you can break up the book of Genesis is that in Genesis 1 through 11, you see this really wide angle lens, don't you? It starts with the creation of all humanity, the destruction of the entire world through the flood, there's the expansion of nations out, you have the so-called table of nations, and then the Tower of Babel, and the confusing of the languages, and the spreading out of peoples again, right? I mean, this is... Wide angle left stuff. This is like the history of humanity. And then starting in Genesis 12, what happens? Right? Down to one man, Abraham. And the rest of the book is really a history of his family. So that tells you, that tells you something specific. The whole history of humanity is tied up with this one man, Abraham, and what happens with his descendants. And of course, we know why, right? What's the obvious answer to that? 
from our perspective looking back. Yeah, because out of the family of Abraham would come one through whom blessing would go to all the nations. And that was important, right? Because what had happened at the fall, God had said, cursed are you because, right? So Adam had brought curse, a descendant of Abraham, who was also a descendant of Noah and of Adam and Eve, out of his him would come blessing to the nations again. In you, in your seed, all the nations shall be blessed, right? Okay, so this is a ways that you can see the structure of Genesis. So, any any questions at this point that you have so far? All right. Okay. So, at this point we have to ask, why was Genesis written? Um now, of course, when you ask that question, why was Genesis written, you can't ask that question without also asking the broader question of why was the Pentateuch written? Again, what does Pentateuch mean? Five books. So, why were these first five books of the Bible written? You know, it'd be like asking why was The Hobbit written without asking why were the, the entire story of The Lord of the Rings written? I know, I'm a nerd, but (laughs) you can't separate out Genesis from the Pentateuch. So the question, why was Genesis written, is really tied in with the broader question of why was the Pentateuch written? Why these five books that Moses, that God delivered uh, through Moses to Israel? Well, of course, Genesis, um, or the Pentateuch, was written by Moses to the nation of Israel, really upon its founding. So God rescued Israel out of Egypt, entered into covenant with her at Mount Sinai, and that's a good way of describing Israel because God would often refer to Israel as his covenant wife or bride, and he was like her bridegroom. So he enters into covenant relationship with her, and as in often would happen in a covenant, there were documents written pertaining to that covenant, telling the history of their relationship, how they came into this covenant relationship with each other, what the terms of this relationship are, uh, the blessings and the curses, blessings for fidelity to the covenant, curses for an infidelity to the covenant, and other things pertaining to the covenant. So you see, why was the Pentateuch written? Well, these were covenant documents. These were documents pertaining to the covenant that God made with Israel, the nation, at Mount Sinai. We call them, we call that covenant the Old Covenant. Now, there might be some debate about what that terminology always means in different contexts, but generally speaking, the Old Covenant is the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. The Pentateuch are covenant documents, right? God wrote them. I mean, you read them and you're like, no, but these go back all the way to creation. Yes, but... Moses had a purpose in taking the story all the way back into creation because the story of Israel and how they came to be God's covenant people was tied into the story of humanity and and the creation of the world. Because it goes back to what promise? Genesis 3, 15, right? In your seed, a seed, the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent and Moses shows you in the book of Genesis how that promise, that ancient promise, began to develop and how it led to God selecting Abraham and, and that these promises built upon one another. 
So, these are covenant documents. And Genesis is already obviously part one of the covenant document. Uh, and, and so, what does Genesis contribute to these broader documents, these, these five books given to Israel? What's the specific role of Genesis within the Pentateuch, right? And you see, of course, it contributes to the history of Israel's covenant with God. Now, I, I'm going to actually mention this in my sermon today. I was thinking about these things uh, due to the research I was doing for my sermon. But it was commonplace in ancient covenants to have, you would have a, a superior party and a lesser party. And as part of the documentation of treaties or covenant agreements, you would often have a, a, a history of the relationship between those two parties. And particularly, you would have a history of what the superior party had done for the inferior party. And then you would have the obligations of the inferior party to the superior party with blessings and curses, etc. Right. So, the actual structure of these covenant documents is not wholly unlike covenant documents that we would find um, in the ancient world. It has, a, in other words, a structure that was similar to the structure of many ancient covenants. So God was, in, in, one, in some ways, appropriating a common human covenantal structure in that day to define his relationship with Israel. In other words, this isn't like coming out of the blue. So, when you think of Genesis, you think, okay, this is part of these covenant documents where God, through Moses, is recounting the history of his relationship with Israel, how it came to be that they are entering into a covenant. And of course, he's, it's taking you all the way back to the beginning. So what's the point? Genesis is telling you, Israel, you know, Yahweh is speaking to Israel, his covenant partner. He's saying, the reason why I have entered into covenant with you, the reason why I've chosen you and rescued you out of Egypt, and now entered and chosen to join myself to you in a covenant. It goes all the way back to creation. So let me tell you the story. First, I created the world. And then I created humanity within the world in my image, right? And then humanity rebelled against me and fell into sin, and a curse came upon the world. And I, but I initiated a plan of salvation through that, that would begin with um, a promise that a seed, a descendant of the woman, would crush the head of the devil who had instigated the fall. And then you begin to see these dueling seeds, beginning with Cain and, and Abel, right? And then the line of Seth versus the line of Cain. And out of the line of Seth comes this man, Abraham, who I chose to fulfill my ancient promise to Adam. It would be through Abraham. Through him would come a descendant who would bring blessing again to the nations. And it's this promise that I made to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, that led me to enter to rescue you out of Egypt. You are the descendants of Abraham. And it's to you that the promise belongs, this ancient promise that goes back actually to my promise to Adam, right? So he's telling the history of how Israel ended up coming into relationship with him. How they ended up down in Egypt, the book of Genesis ends explaining how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place, right? Because the history of Israel, even today, a modern Jew, you ask, you know, where did they come from as a nation? What's at the very center of their 
sort of thinking of their national identity as a nation, where do they go back to? What's that? Moses. Yeah, Moses, and particularly of a, of a particular event, the the Exodus, right? This is why the Passover is so central. Well, Genesis tells you how they ended up down in Egypt, <laughs> why they needed an Exodus. And it explains why the, the one true creator God redeemed them out of Egypt as a nation of people and established this covenant with them. It goes back to Genesis 3.15. It goes back to, to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the promises that built one upon another. Okay, so it's covenant document. This part of the, of the Pentateuch is going back to the beginning and talk, explaining to Israel how it is who Yahweh is, he's the God who created it all, and how it is that the one true God, Yahweh, ended up taking them and, and making them his covenant people, right? So you think that would have been important to them? Yeah. Part of, wasn't part of that too, because they were in Egypt for that 400 years, they had lost uh, contact really with... Yeah. With the God that they had before, yeah. So he's trying to show them all the this footsteps that had been taken, right? Well, get the, and then try to pull them out of what right. they were beginning to assimilate right. in Egypt. We're going to see in Joshua twenty-four today that Joshua makes mention of the fact that um, he talks about the gods that you worshipped when you were in Egypt as well as the gods that Abraham's family worshipped when they lived in the land of Ur. So, when they were in Egypt, 400 years, who knows how much of their national history, their history as a people, they remembered, recalled, or had lost. And we don't know. I mean, it couldn't have been entirely lost. Moses clearly had access to the history in some way. But it's likely that, by and large, you know, it's like, okay, you go a man on the street today, and you go ask, so, who's George Washington? Or, <laughs> who's Abraham Lincoln? Or, you know, how, what's, ask questions about the history of our country, and how many people are going to give you good answers to that? But we, we're losing that national recollection, right? Well, probably something similar happens. So this is talking to the nation of Israel and telling them where they came from and how it came about that Yahweh, the one true and living God, uh, rescued them and made them his covenant people. Right? Okay, so let's, let's keep going here for the sake of time. Watching my, I have an hourglass and it's just <laughs> sands are passing through. So let's ask, why was Genesis written from another perspective? Because what we realize is that the revelation delivered by Yahweh through Moses, while it is the beginning of the Bible, it certainly isn't the end. Yahweh had much more to say, and he did. He gave more revelation beyond the Pentateuch, beyond those first five books, to the nation of Israel. So the entire Old Testament, remember I said this, Testament is another word for covenant. The entire Old Testament contains the body of revelation that God gave to his old covenant people. It all pertained to their identity and calling as his old covenant people. 
And then we have a new covenant inaugurated with the coming of Jesus and a, a new body of revelation, right? New Testament, new covenant revelation. The New Testament books, those 27 books, are written through the inspiration of the same God, same author, but they pertain to the new covenant and are given to his new covenant people. Now, of course, there's a sense in which the church also owned the Old Testament, right? But it had to be translated, interpreted through what had happened with Jesus Christ. So that Paul was always telling the the church, "You're, you're not under the law as Israel was. It's not to say the law has nothing to do with you, but you're under a new covenant. Now, so, when you think of Genesis, okay, what's the purpose of Genesis in the larger picture of the Bible as a whole? Well, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and while its immediate purpose was to tell the story of how Israel came into covenant relationship with God, it was a a document given to the nation of Israel as their covenant history, when you see the totality of the revelation God had given, you come to understand that Genesis was actually much more than that. Genesis actually tells you the history of the human race and tells you how it is that God would save his fallen human creatures out of, out of their current condition. So it, it, it explains much more than the history of Israel. It explains where the world, where the human race came from, how the world and how the human race ended up in this fallen condition that we see, right? I mean, human beings are basically good, right? But, I mean, no, the Bible tells you this is why, you know, we've just come through the the bloodiest century in human history and we can say, yes, man is definitely depraved. How did that happen? Why are there tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and disease and spiders, <laughs> sharks? Well, at least why do they terrify and harm, right? It goes back to Genesis. And it explains why, it explains why, like, just imagine if you had Jesus and you had his person and work, but you didn't have Genesis, Right? Genesis actually lays the foundation for you beginning to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. Right, So in the broader picture of the new covenant as well, it serves, it provides this history that explains the person and work of Jesus. He is the seed of Adam. It goes back to Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of Abraham through whom blessing would come to the nation. Okay, so let's keep going here. Let, let me just, um, again, another wonderful photograph of the Garden of Eden, if you've never seen it before. <laughs> let's talk about, now let's step back from all these things and let's talk about what kinds of things does God teach us in the book of Genesis specifically? Well, first of all, it teaches us where everything came from. So, time plus matter plus chance in a hollow and meaningless and purposeless universe, or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And man, who, uh, who is mankind? Man is the special creature of God, whom out of all the creatures of the earth he made, particularly in his image, right? 
And it tells us who God is. It tells us that the creator of the universe is Yahweh, is this is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and is the triune God more uh, fully. Uh, that's revealed in the New Testament, right? So it tells you who he is and it tells you that he's eternal, that all things were made through him and he existed before. Even time itself existed. It tells you of his power, of his wisdom, that he could just speak the world into existence, of his goodness, and he looked over all that he had made and it was very good, right? It tells us all of these things. Grace, Adam and Eve rebel against him. They say, we don't care what you say, God. I think what you're really doing in your command is holding me back from something better. So we're going to choose our will over yours. And they, in a high-handed way, rebelled against the authority of God under the deception and lies of the devil. And God did not squash him like a bug. He went out to them and covered their nakedness with skins of an animal and initiated and gave them a promise in the midst of a curse of an, of an overturning of what the devil had done this promise of redemption. So you see his grace and his mercy and his goodness from the beginning. You also see the the purpose of life. You say, well, what is the meaning of, of life? Who can tell us what the meaning of life is, right? No one knows. It's all subjective. We just make up our own meaning. No, the Bible tells us what our meaning is. It's right there in that language of the image of God. I often would tell my kids, um, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see an image of yourself. You see... And what does that image tell you? It reflects something of who you are. Oh, it's not you, right? But it it shows you something of who you are. Well, there is something about that that captures humanity. That humanity especially was made in the image of God such that we were created to reflect certain things about God in our life. The old Westminster Confession says that... that, um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify Him, to reflect His character, and to enjoy Him, to be in relationship with Him. Well, that's a pretty good purpose of life, and it sure explains a lot pretty well, doesn't it? It explains the calling that God has put upon our life to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. And it also explains the existence of certain human institutions. You know, why is it that every, you know, every creature, really, animal or human being in the world is gendered? Well, it goes back to Genesis 1. And that's how God made them. Why is it that every human society, going back as far as we can tell, always had an institution of marriage? Well, it goes back to Genesis 2, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There it is, right? What about sexuality? And the two shall become one flesh. And later on, you understand that to be a reference to the sexual union between the husband and the wife. What about work? He put Adam into the garden to work it and to keep it. There's work. Even before the fall, it's not a bad thing. Man was made to to work. Of course, it came under corruption through the curse. What about human government? I think most people have looked at the both the creation mandate, take dominion over the earth, but also in Genesis 9 where he says, if man sheds the blood of fellow man, his blood shall be shed. 
uh, by fellow man. And right there you see there's to be some kind of enforcement of punishment by fellow men against others for crimes committed against one who's made in the image of God. And there we see the beginning of what would be just the reality built into the DNA of human beings that there would be societies and that there would be government over those societies. And then it tells us how we got into this position that we're in of corruption, both the world around us that we live in and our own human nature, Satan's temptation, Adam's disobedience in the garden, and then, of course, the transmission of both the guilt and corruption of Adam to his descendants, right? Who were Adam and Eve's first two children? Cain and Abel, and what did Cain do to his brother Abel? Clearly, something has been passed down uh, as a result of the fall, right? And not only that, but as soon as you have the descendants of Cain, it says so-and-so lived so many years, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And you have the transmission of Adam's, of the, of the effects of Adam's sin passed down to his progeny. Let's look at a couple of other things. Genesis also teaches the promise of redemption for fallen humanity through, as I said, a descendant of Adam, right? Genesis 3.15. And also that it tells us certain things about how this plan of salvation would unfold. We see in the flood that it would, it would not be everyone who was saved, but it would be a remnant of humanity that is preserved from the judgment of God, like Noah and his family. You see that it would come through the descendants of Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 tells us, In your seed, through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. And you see that it, you, you begin to see how God is going to give his promises, uh, not through physical descent, right? They tried that with Hagar, and God rejected Ishmael. But it would be through, through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it would be through God's, through God's power, not man's. This is another lesson of uh, the Isaac and Ishmael narratives. Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah trying to bring this about through their own efforts and ingenuity. Uh, whereas God said, no, I am going to give supernatural conce- conception to the barren woman. And through that descendant, the promise will come. And that it was man's choice. It would be according to man's, to God's choice, not man. So who did Isaac want to receive the blessing? His strong, hairy hunter son. But who did God choose to give it to, right? Jacob, the younger son. And there's a clear emphasis upon election that Paul picks up on in Romans 9. And also that it would come through grace, not merit. You read the story of Jacob and you see just a man of integrity like Daniel. Is that what you see in Jacob? No, he's a heel catcher. He's a deceiver. He's one who God molds and fashions over time. But you see in Jacob the emphasis upon God's grace, that he bestows his promise upon Jacob, not because he deserved it, but because God set his love upon him, right? And then you see also at the end of Genesis, this emphasis upon the fact, right? It's summarized in Genesis 50, 20. You remember, what does it say in Genesis 50, 20? Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That God would bring this plan of salvation about um, despite and even through His providential ordering 
of both the good and the bad of human actions, right? And yeah, like Romans 8, and also uh, like Jesus himself, right? Typified by David, the one rejected on the run, but God's anointed, and God turns the tables, and Saul goes down, and David goes up, and that's how it was with Jesus as well. Okay, so let's, let's just think about how Genesis relates to the New Testament. First of all, we see, and I'm not going to be able to go through these verses, I apologize. So, Genesis in the New Testament. Well, you remember Hebrews 2, 14-15, where it talks about how um, Jesus came to uh, destroy the one who had held us captive through fear of death. And it's talking about Jesus destroying, that is, the devil. Jesus had come to destroy the devil and liberate people who are enslaved through him. That's an allusion, almost all New Testament scholars will say, ah, right off the bat, that's an allusion to Genesis 3.15. It's one of the several in the New Testament telling you that Jesus is the seed of the woman who come to crush the head of the serpent and to liberate those who, and to undo his work, right? Um, In Galatians 3, I would encourage you, just read through Galatians 3. And you can see from the very beginning, the emphasis in Galatians 3 is that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is coming to fulfillment through Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham, and through him the blessing has come to the Gentiles, to the nations, right? And and that's the point that Paul's making in Galatians 3. It's just amazing. Um, You get to the end and he says, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. He says, if anyone is in Christ... Uh, or if any of you have been baptized in, into Christ, you have put on Christ, and he says, at the very end, you are the seed of Abraham, those who uh, through faith are in Christ. Um, and the blessing, the, pro- the promised blessing has come to you. Also, Jesus is the one who's going to bring final judgment on the world like the flood. You remember this in Second Peter chapter 3? He talks about the flood, And then he says, in the similar way, God's going to destroy the earth again by fire and then bring in a new creation. Well, who is it that is going to bring about that judgment? Well, um, 2 Thessalonians 1, Revelation 19, Jesus is the one who comes on a white horse with a sword in hand to bring judgment on the nations. Jesus is the one who comes in flaming fire dealing out retribution upon mankind, 2 Thessalonians 1. He is the judge of all the earth, the one who appears in the clouds right, with his holy angels and the cry of an archangel. He's the one who brings final judgment akin to the flood. Um, and Jesus is also the one who brings final redemption to humanity and to creation. So what, what happened to the world and what happened to human, the human race through Adam's sin is undone through Jesus. You remember Romans chapter 5, through one man sin entered in the world, and then it parallels that, and through one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. So we, in Christ, are justified through his obedience unto death, but also when he comes again, he's going to liberate the whole creation, including his his, uh, elect, from the effects of sin and the curse, so that he's going to raise us from the dead, he's going to 
create a new heavens and a new earth as our eternal homeland. And what happened in Genesis 3 is going to be undone. And it will be even better than it was before. So the story started there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is reversed in through Jesus at the end of the age. And this is, this is what is said in 2, Thess- 2 Peter 3, Romans 8, etc. Okay, and then one more thing here, and this will be our last slide. There's an important way in which Genesis establishes patterns, or you might use the word type. A type is a, a person, an event, an institution that God established at some point in history to prefigure and point forward to uh, something greater to come. And, and all the types of the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate, they were all pointing forward and pre, uh, prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And what you see in the New Testament is that there's all kinds of allusions and references to the fact that to, to these climactic things that Jesus is bringing about, and they go back uh, and find their type, their original pattern in Genesis. So you think the Bible begins with the creation, and what happens in Genesis and Revelation 21 and 22? New creation, right? So the Bible's moving from Genesis, creation, to Revelation 21 and 22, new creation, right? Um, and, and the imagery of the garden and the tree of life, right? And the serpent being cast into the abyss. All of this is alluding back to the patterns of Genesis, right? So Eden is restored in the new creation. The tree of life is restored to human beings in the new creation, right? All of that is, finds its roots in Genesis. Again, Eden and the new Jerusalem. Go and read the description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22. And you have... You have a throne there and a city, but you also have a river flowing out of it, lined with the tree of life that brings healing to the nations, right? And it's garden-like. It's like a paradise. So the New Jerusalem is Edenic in that way. The, the, the Garden of Eden is pointing forward to the city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And what was enjoyed by Adam and Eve in Eden will be joy- enjoyed by the elect in a fuller way in the new Jerusalem in the new creation, right? Adam and Eve and marriage, right? It's often pointed out that the Bible begins in Genesis 2 with a marriage between the first man and the first woman. And it ends with a marriage, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride is the people of God. And so marriage is pointing forward to the relationship between Christ and his bride. Of course, that's the point Paul's making in, Gen- in Ephesians chapter 5. Adam, as the head of humanity, what he did counted for his descendants. That was pointing you forward to. Paul actually says Adam was a type of Christ, of the one to come. Jesus, too, is the head of a new humanity. And what he did would count for them. Except instead of dragging us down into corruption and guilt, what he did would bring us up into righteousness and life. Adam... Second Adam. First Adam, second Adam, right? You see the typology there? The flood. The New Testament often looks back to the flood as a harbinger of the final judgment. Uh, that Jesus said, right? We read it, right? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in that day, right? So you have a prefiguring of what the final judgment would be like, except worse. 
Uh, Isaac's supernatural birth. In fact, Genesis is strewn with barren women who give birth to a promised child through a supernatural birth. And what you have in the birth of Christ is sort of a climactic expression of that. And why? Why? Because it would be seen that this is from, this is brought about by God, not by human strength or human uh, wisdom, right? And so you have these supernatural births that ultimately point forward to, prefigure and point forward to Christ and his virgin birth. You have the sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22, is clearly alluded to in Romans 8. 32, I'll let you look at that, where it says God did not spare his only son. That's an allusion to Genesis 22, when Abraham did not spare his only son, but offered him up. And what we see is that the the sacrifice of Isaac was actually establishing a pattern that would point forward to the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, the New Testament repeatedly, on multiple occasions, refers to the binding of Isaac And then finally, I do think that there's a typological pattern established by Joseph, right? The man who was rejected by his kin, whom they sought to put to death, who ends up down in the dungeon. And then in God's providence, his fortunes are flipped and he's risen up and he's set over all of Egypt. And through him, all the nations stream to Egypt and are preserved from the... Right? So... When you look at that from a Christian perspective, how can you not see something? Because what does he end up doing? He ends up saving his own kin who sought to murder him, right? And there's something about that that provides this beautiful picture of Christ who was rejected by his own people and yet was raised up by God to become their Savior. And, And also not just his own people, but all the nations would come to him for salvation as they did to Joseph. And so... There, my point is that Genesis is also filled with patterns, patterns that prefigured and pointed forward to what would happen in the fullness of time through the person and the work of Christ. So that Genesis is so critical to understanding the, the, the work of Christ on earth. Okay, we have run out of, we've long run out of time. Let me close us in prayer. Feel free to come up to me. Talk to me more about these things afterwards. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our study of Genesis today. We pray that you would just use our time together to really illumine our minds to understand this book and what its teaching contributes to the storyline of the Bible and to the teaching of the Bible and how it points us forward to the person and work of Christ and lays the foundation for us understanding the profound power and grace and wonder of what he has done, who he is and what he has done. The great seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the only begotten beloved son of the father whom he offered up uh, as our substitute for sin. Um, we, we thank you for all of these things. We pray that you would, as we, th- that this would serve to help us understand our Bibles better and to help us understand Genesis better the next time we read through it in our Bible reading. And most of all, that it would increase our knowledge of you and our knowledge of your Son and have a transformative effect upon us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.